Hasib Qureshi is an instructor at App Academy, a coding boot camp in San Francisco. Before that, Hasib was a high-stakes professional poker player. Hasib, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Six months ago, you decided to become a web developer, and before that, you were playing poker. Well, I guess mm-hmm. at, that to- at that time, you weren't playing poker, but long before that, you were playing poker. But in any yeah. case, that's a sharp career transition, and I'd love if you could give the listeners a brief explanation of your journey from poker to web development. Uh, so I started playing poker when I was really young. I guess I was 16 years old when I started playing, uh, sort of quote-unquote professionally. I kind of, I kind of fell into it somewhat, uh, somewhat haphazardly, and I started making a lot of money at a young age. Uh, I think I, when I was 19, I became a millionaire, and then when I was 21 is when I decided to quit, and a lot of stuff happened around that time, and I decided to stop playing poker. Uh, I'm 26 now, so it's been, uh, a little bit over four years since I since I quit, and after I quit poker, I decided to work as a mental coach. Well, to go back to school because I'd like dropped out of school to play poker because it was very lucrative at the time. Um, but I decided to work as a mental coach, meaning that I was training professional poker players on the psychological part of the game, on like decision making and controlling their emotions. Uh, and for a long time, I was kind of trying to figure out what what thing I wanted to do next with my life, and I kind of. I kind of wavered between like for a while I was flirting with going to law school and then getting an MBA. Uh, and it, it actually was somewhat strange the way that I wound up going to join a coding boot camp to learn how to become a software developer. The, the original impetus for it was I, one of my clients when I was uh, working as a mental coach was a guy who was a, uh, he was starting a startup out in Silicon Valley in San Jose. And he wanted some. He, he sort of invited me to join his startup, which for me was really exciting, because I always had kind of wanted in the back of my mind to come to Silicon Valley and to work in like tech entrepreneurship. You know, there was sort of always this kind of uh, this sort of focal point around which I was always paying attention, and like even when I was a poker player, it was something that I was sort of always thinking about and cognizant of. Of like that just sounds like an exciting space and somewhere where like I can imagine really wanting to be. Um, were you but, intimidated by it? Because, uh, I mean, like, as, as a poker player, you don't really learn anything other than poker. I mean, a, right, a lot of yeah. people have an idea that poker has all these transitionary skills that you can take over from one uh, area of life to another. And there are mm-hmm. some skills, but they aren't exactly the ones that are, uh, I don't know, that, I don't know, maybe you could talk more about that. Like, how. Yeah, yeah, how, totally. How, how, how poker, you know, actually, like, you know, did, did, so I guess I should ask, you know, did you feel intimidated by the tech scene? Because all the only, the main experience you had was just as a poker player. Yeah. Un- unequivocally. Yes. I was totally intimidated. I remember actually, so this guy, uh, when I was, when I was speaking to him, I, I asked him like, oh wow, that's, you know, that's really, you know, very kind of you to invite me out to join your startup. Uh, but I, I can't do anything. Right? Like I don't know, I don't know anything. I I am totally like this is complete greenfield. I have no clue how to do anything. So like it, I would be happy to join, but I will do so with the caveat that like I can't do anything. You'll have to teach me everything you want me to know. And uh, he, he he was very encouraging though. He was like, well, you know, I trust that you're smart enough and that you're capable enough that you'll be able to figure things out quickly. Um, and I and, and the thing is like I think that ability to be able to figure things out quickly and kind of learn on your feet. I think it's it's very well correlated with really good poker players, mm. but I don't think it's like I, I don't think it's causal. 
in the sense that I don't think like getting really good at poker makes you very good at learning just anything, you know. Mm. Uh, but I do think well, people so who are good I mean, at learning Well, so here's the anything. unique thing about learning poker. Yeah. When you you and I learned it, uh, you know, we 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 started learning poker kind of when. Uh, there were all these internet resources available to it. So yeah. I think that's if there's anything that maps really well from learning poker in 2004, 2006, or whenever we learned it, mm-hmm. and learning programming more recently, it's the fact that you have this wealth of internet resources and you have to figure out how to use them. Yeah, that's 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 fairly true. Although in a way, like the way that I learned programming was very much not just like being in my, well, I mean, a little bit, but it was very much not just sitting in my basement and like, you know, just running through through many, many articles and many, many, you know, forums and whatever and trying to figure out, piece together a way to teach myself. I mean, that's kind of what I did as a poker player. But, you know, in a sense, like taking a boot camp, like a coding boot camp, is exactly the opposite of that route, right? right. It's sort it's of saying that, like, like... Exactly, like exactly. Approach. Exactly. It's sort of saying that, like, you know, this is a solved problem, how to learn this thing, you know? And... If I go to the place where they've consolidated the best resources and the best sort of uh, – also like the best sort of social pressure and the sort of environment that facilitates learning this stuff, I would just learn it faster. You know, Like if there were, if there were like a boot camp for learning poker, I am sure that you could get people to become really, really good poker players faster than they could just going on the internet and scouring through things and kind of like – you know. Uh, just sort of wandering around until they find a, a formula that works, which is basically what you and I did, right? Mm. Like, I don't think yes. I don't think the experience for you or I when we were learning poker, uh, you know, very much isolated from the community of really good poker players who sort of knew the best way to learn, uh, is that you sort of screw up a lot of times and you just like kind of try this and this doesn't work, try that, that doesn't work, and you finally, you know, you start with like. Doyle Brunson's super system, which is totally useless. And you, you know, you read like some, some stupid website that's like, oh, the, here's how you play pocket jacks and like always raise these hands. And, and that's bad advice too. And you finally find the good advice somewhere. And maybe the good advice comes with some kind of training regimen. Some, you know, maybe it doesn't. Maybe you have to go to various places and cobble together. Like, here's how you manage your bankroll. Here's how you, you know, uh, here's how you should organize your sessions. Here's how you should, you know, here's the sites that you should play on. Right? Like, all the advice is somewhere, but it's hard to find that high quality information and mm. put it together in one place. Uh, and so, you know, with a coding bootcamp, I think if I was trying to learn coding on my own to the level that you know App Academy was able to teach me it definitely would have taken me significantly longer, um, probably by maybe twice as long or, or, or longer, I would say. Okay, uh, so let, let's put a little more context level. around this. So yes. you played poker through high school uh, early on in college. Yeah. Uh, you kind of stopped paying attention to school. You just focused on poker. Yeah. Eventually, you stopped playing poker. Uh, some time passed, and then you started becoming a web developer. So I do want to get into the web development stuff, but I want to talk briefly about the session of time between when you quit poker and mm-hmm. when you decided to become a web developer. So, mm-hmm. w- first of all, what were the things that made you quit poker? So, uh, I mean, a lot of it was that I really didn't enjoy the game of poker anymore. Um, it was really since I was since I was nineteen, actually, which is uh, like also ironically the time that I was most uh, most successful and like playing the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, was when I really stopped enjoying the game. And a lot of that kind of came out of the fact that, you know, once you get really, really good at poker, um, you know, the exciting part of poker was a year or two before that, 
when I was constantly growing, I was constantly moving up in stakes. There was there were these clear goals and this sort of ladder that you could climb to become a better and better poker player. And that was intrinsically motivating to me because I, I think to my core, I'm a really, really competitive person. And having those clear goals that you can like, I just got to get this much better and then I can move on to the next stage. That was really exciting to me. And that sort of kept me going. Once I got, you know, when I was around that time, I think it was 2009, um, I got to a place where I had reached like the highest levels of poker, you know, where we were playing, uh, I was playing games against people for like, you know, $40,000, $60,000 buy-ins. And at that level, uh, there are only like maybe, you know, seven or eight players in the world who are like, I was pretty sure were better than me. But it didn't make sense to play against those players because the money was so big and expensive and there was, there was no advantage to being better than them because if I were better than those players, then they would stop playing me, right? Like sort of the reward structure of poker kind of broke down where there was no longer any incentive to get better. And it was extremely expensive to get better because, you know, those players would only play me at really, really high stakes. So, you know, if the best players in the world were willing to play me for like, you know, $2,000 buy-in games, then I would have totally been happy to do it. But if I wanted to get good enough to be better than those very, very best players, it would have cost me a ton of money and I wouldn't have gotten anything out of it because, you know, then they'd stop playing me as soon as I, you know, could prove that I was better than them. And so it just became this sort of like upkeep, right? It's like staying where you're at and not moving because there's nowhere for you to move up and you don't want to, you know, sort of lose your, you, you you want to remain the powerful incumbent and it just sucks, like it's not yeah. there's it, you lose the excitement of it, and the thing for me was that I was never all that motivated by money. It was much more about the competition. It was much more about like the the game of poker is what was what was intrinsically interesting to me. Uh, and so you know, uh, I guess in so in 2011, uh, like a bunch of a bunch of shit happened. So there was this big uh, scandal that came up when a student of mine wa- uh, was caught cheating, and I ended up lying to the poker community trying to protect him and to protect myself uh, because you know, cheating is like a cardinal sin in poker. It was, this big, it was this big fiasco where I just did a bunch of stupid shit. And after that, I decided, all right, you know, I, I've, I've been sticking this through because I sort of knew that like, in, poker was the one place where I would just make more money than I could anywhere else. You know? And it was such a, you know, such like a golden hen, right? Yeah. That it was just laying these golden eggs and I was just like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I was 20 at the time. Uh, I'm 20 years old. I really don't like this game anymore. But if I quit, I, I you know, I'm probably just going to become 30 someday and regret that I didn't make another million dollars or something. Yeah. Right. And so, I, it, it's kind of like, I don't know. In a way, it's, it's sort of these golden handcuffs type thing, right? Where you're too. Poker has trained you to be so rational and so cognizant of money and opportunity costs that it kind of like it keeps you or at least it kept me chained to it for like a really really long time and it kind of took that that uh blow to really give me enough momentum to be like all right you know what i'm done like i'm not growing from this this is not making me a better person this is not helping me in my life in in sort of the larger sense and so i decided to to walk away and to not play poker again for as long as I could. So, and, so once you had that existential event, and then you have this gap of time between 
that yeah. event and when you decided to become a web developer. Mm-hmm. What happened over that period of time that evolved to you become? Well, so I guess you you know you already mentioned this somewhat. You you uh, you know you went back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, you uh, were considering uh, going to law school, getting an MBA. Uh, yeah. You were considering um, some other things. Why? What? Okay, and then you actually you already said you said there was a tipping point where. Uh, somebody invited you to come down to Silicon Valley to join his startup. So mm-hmm. why did uh, that invitation, or maybe maybe I'm getting things wrong, did that invitation morph into you ending up at a coding boot camp? It kind of did, yeah. Well, there's this one, there, there is one other intermediary step that I, did not, that I did not mention that I think also kind of plays into it as to why I chose web development over uh, these, other, these other routes of like either law school or, or getting an MBA. So... In uh, it was in 2013, I think December of 2013. Uh, I ended up uh, publishing a book on on the philosophy of poker, and I also decided to give away all the money that I'd made as a poker player. And soon after I did that, I started getting really involved in effective altruism, which is this movement that's kind of about um, kind of combining rationality and sort of charity or doing good for the world in this really kind of uh, rigorous way. And one of the ideas in effective altruism is what's called earning to give, which basically means making as much money as possible, or making not necessarily as much money as possible, but a lot of money, uh, and giving as much of it as, as you can to high-impact charities around the world. And the idea being that like, if you do this, this might actually be more efficacious in a, sort of a utilitarian sense than just going out and like volunteering in a soup kitchen or you know, the, the normal, th- or like joining the Peace Corps, or normal things that people think of as being really altruistic ways to live your life. And so that's one of the reasons why I was thinking about getting an MBA or going into law school, because it would give me this, this route to earn a lot of money and then give a lot of it to charity. Uh, sort of like a, kind of like a reverse, you know, Andrew Carnegie, except like not when I'm dead, like while I'm still alive, right? Mm. And so when, uh, when this guy offered me this, this position at a, uh, at a startup, uh, I was I was really intrigued by it because I thought, okay, this is this is like a quick way for me to get into tech, which is ultimately where I want to end up anyway, uh, and it allows me to like start earning now rather than you know three years in the future or two years in the future, burdened by student loans and all this sort of stuff. And I just you know I think it's it's correct to have a strong bias toward earning money now and doing the thing that you want to do now rather than waiting and sort of like putting things on the back burner. Where your priorities might change, your, you know, the, the world situation might change, uh, and so I was like, okay, this sounds like the right thing to do. The the downside of joining this guy's startup is that so this I, I did not mention this yet. He told me that well, what we really need is someone doing customer acquisition, which is essentially like marketing, right? And I was like, well, you know, that that sucks. I don't really want to do marketing, <laughs> but fine. It's like it's a way to get in, right? I, I just kind of assumed that like if I if I just get into the space. Then I'll just learn a lot. I'll be able to pivot. I'll be able to do things that sound more interesting to me. Uh, so fine, I'll start there. And uh, they didn't have funding yet, and they were planning to get funding fairly soon. And so I was kind of waiting for them to get funding. And I thought that in the meantime, I would learn more about marketing because you know why not? I guess I have to get good at this thing. Uh, and I started reading a lot about growth hacking because you know obviously this is like the the buzzword that. If you, if, you, if you Google marketing for startups, you will get nothing but growth hacking articles. So I started reading that in growth hacking, um, you, you know, growth hackers need to be very technical, right? And so they need to know things like HTML, CSS, uh, JavaScript was on the list as well, SQL, 
a bunch of a bunch of articles were telling me this, and so I was like, okay, I guess I better learn these things. <laughs> and uh, so I started, you know, doing these online tutorials on. Uh, I started teaching myself R. I started uh, doing tutorials on HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And what I found was that I was picking it up really fast. You know, like these tutorials would say, you know, this thing takes twelve hours to do this course, and I would so do it in like point, were you, four or five. Were, were you thinking like I'm going to be the best growth hacker ever? Basically, yeah. That, that was the that was the plan. Is that I was going to become this awesome growth hacker, even yeah. though I didn't care at all for marketing. Like marketing is just I don't know, like the most undesirable thing that I could imagine myself doing. But I was like, well, screw it. I'm going to get good at this thing. This is this is what I'm here for. Uh, and I found that I was, well, so when I was did learning you, when this did stuff you, really fast. Yeah. When when did you have the 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 shift in mentality that oh, I shouldn't actually be focusing on this. Uh, coding as a means to becoming a marketer, I should just be focusing on coding as a means to learn coding. It was really actually, there was a buddy of mine who was who was looking into coding boot camps, and uh, I, I kept giving him the advice of like, oh man, you should just drop everything and go do it, because, you know, coding boot camps, like, they have really good outcomes, blah, blah, blah. I never really even considered doing one myself uh, until I started, like, just crushing these online tutorials and really, really enjoying them. Right, like finding that it was way more fun than any of the crap that I was reading about, like you know, I don't know, uh, conversion rate optimization and all this other crap that I guess growth hackers have to do, and it just sounded so uninteresting. But like the the actual coding part of it was deeply enjoyable and very very you know, intrinsically motivated. I just wanted to do it, and uh, it finally just occurred to me that like you know they have like uh, the timeline was like three months or something until they got funding, and so I was like, well, three months. That's like around the same amount of time that it would take for me to join a coding boot camp, you know? So if I did a coding boot camp and I came out, maybe I could like sell them on hiring me as a developer rather than hiring me as a growth hacker. And so I was like, all right, screw it. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a shot. So one day, this was like just kind of, you know, at, at the drop of a hat, I just decided this one night that I was going to do it. And so I spent all night like researching all the coding boot camps that I could find in Silicon Valley. Uh, I applied to every single one of them the exact same night. And the next week, I basically just spent like kind of, you know, huddled in the corner of my room, just studying code nonstop as fast as I could because I'd lined up like all these applications and all these interviews the, to try to get into all these coding boot camps. And it was just, it was, it was insane. And, but it was also like deeply, deeply enjoyable, you know? Like, I don't know. Maybe that's kind of how I knew that. Uh, coding was something that I was just going to jive with. Was so that, was it like the flow state? Like you had found the yes. flow state? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Was, it the, was that the first time that you had found flow state since since poker? Uh, was it the first time? I, I don't know. Maybe. I think maybe, yeah. I mean, it was the first time that I've been that kind of like ruthlessly obsessive about something since I was a poker player, right? And since like very early on in my poker career. Like I remember, you know, when I was... When I was uh, playing really, really high stakes, that kind of like obsessive drive, just like, I just want to keep getting better at this, you know, like this is, this is enough to motivate me to just do this for like the whole day. Yeah. Like it's been such a long time since I've had anything that motivated me that way, but learning how to code really, really gave me that, that kind of just like relentless drive. So I want to I want to fast forward to your experience at App Academy. So you yeah. you you went through all these applications, mm -hmm. um, and you you actually just posted a, a great blog post uh, about this about how to get into a, a coding bootcamp and how to make make it through. And I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but so you wind up at App Academy, mm -hmm. um, which is your first choice of all the 
the coding boot camps, the Silicon Valley coding boot camps that you had applied to. Yeah. You moved to Silicon Valley. You're at App Academy. What happens on day one? What is your experience as a student? What is my experience as a student? Well, so App Academy, um, they are a full uh, every every single course at App Academy, or basically every single day, is pair programming, which means that you know you're sitting with somebody you've never met so, you know, on day one. No one knows anyone, uh, and you have to work through a set of problems or a set of exercises or build a project with some random guy you don't know. And of course, all the coding I've done up to this point has been completely solo. So it's a uh, pair programming is really, really interesting experience, at least for me, the first time that I've done it, because even like as a poker player, right, like I'd spent, you know, five years of my life playing poker professionally, completely by myself. And it's very, it was very jarring for me to get into that experience where you're trying to like you're sort of trying to like do this mind meld kind of thing with another person who doesn't think the way you do, doesn't look at problems the way you do, uh, and try to try to solve something in tandem, like cooperatively. That 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 was very difficult for me. Um, I think the, I was a pretty crappy partner. I think the first day because I was just like I was. Um, so you know, it, uh, App Academy is a Ruby, uh, kind of uncooperative, but. V- not that uncooperative. It was more that like I really, really wanted to hyper optimize things, and my partner was just like, "Well, let's we 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 solved it," you know. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, "No, no, no, but we can, but we can do this in one line. I know we can," you know. And so I, I kept trying to come up with these like just absurd one liners to try to solve all these coding problems. And my partner was just like, "Why? Why are we doing this? Like, this is we just we already solved it. I don't know why why this matters." Um, and so I had I kind of had to learn to knock that off after a couple of days, but it, it took a while to beat that out of me really because Ruby is such, it's, you know, we were doing it in Ruby at the very beginning because the app Academy teaches uh, Ruby, SQL, JavaScript, Rails, and uh, used to be Backbone. Now it's React as the front end framework. Uh, but so the first week is all Ruby. And so Ruby is just a, a language that's so amenable to conciseness and uh, like this kind of really tight elegance in, yeah. uh, in the way that you can, you know, communicate uh, a problem in code and uh, I was just I was just kind of obsessed with it and so I kept trying to make these like insane one-liners or trying to you know get methods that really should have been like at least five lines or ten lines get it down to like one or two mm. um, so but you unlearn that pretty quickly when you start realizing how much that makes everything else a lot harder when your code is even if it's really concise it's just unreadable you know so why why does App Academy teach primarily in Ruby and the Ruby on Rails stack and, and the, the, the ecosystem around that? Mm-hmm. So as for why, I think, I think a lot of it kind of came down to the fact that the, the really big advantage of Ruby, especially when you're teaching people who have no coding background whatsoever, is that Ruby is just so intuitive, right? It's just so easy to pick it up and immediately feel like you can make things and you can express things. And the... I think one of the big advantages over JavaScript in, in teaching somebody who's totally new is that one, Ruby is like very expressive and very almost like English in, in, in its readability. But the other thing is that it's also very, very helpful in the way that it, that it throws errors, the way that it like points you to exactly what did wrong. It's very forgiving in terms of syntax, which I think for beginners is often extremely frustrating when they, they know what they want to say and they know that they're trying to say it, but the parser just like isn't telling them what they did wrong, you know? And I think one big advantage of Ruby is that you can get people from all sorts of different backgrounds. Uh, you know, so most of the people in App Academy who, who make it into the program, they 
don't, um, you know, most of them don't have any coding experience at all. They were basically like me, where the only coding experience they have is just learning how to get up to speed in order to pass the initial interviews to just show that you can learn, you know. Mm. And that's really what the entrance of App Academy is all about is like, can you learn? And are you right. self-directed, right? These problems are not, do you know computer science? Or can you solve like a really, really hard coding problem? It's more just like, can you learn how to solve basic problems using programming, using code? What's an example of, a, of an early basic problem you have to solve? Um, an early basic problem you have to solve, uh, I think... Is it like reverse a string type stuff? Uh, even simpler than that. I mean, I think one of them was like... Uh, like select all, I think it's like, you know, select all the numbers within a range that are squares, that are perfect okay. squares, right? Which is which is a really simple problem. And like, you know, you can do it on paper. You just have to know, and you have to be literate enough with code to be able to like describe what you would do in terms of code, you know? Pretty much none of the problems that we give you in the initial interview are things that like you couldn't do if we just gave you a pen and paper, right? Yeah. You're like, you know, give me the first 10 numbers that are, that are you know, blah, blah, blah conditions, Right. Uh, you could do that with pen and paper. The question is, like, can you transcribe your thoughts into code, uh, which is just a matter of learning, right? Can you learn enough code and get get just enough uh, fluidity with it in a relatively short amount of time to be able to make that, that translation? And if you can, then it's like, okay, then we are confident we can teach you how to do everything else. Because mm. that's really what it comes down to, is that, like, I don't think, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I don't think that I was intrinsically good at coding or anything about programming because I really didn't have much at all in the way of prior experience. It was more that I was just good at learning and I was good at teaching myself stuff. And I think if you're good at that, the bet that App Academy makes is that we can teach you how to be a developer because that's all it really takes. What are the projects like? What are the big projects? The big projects. So, um, the, uh, so I, I probably can't enumerate all of them because I don't remember all of them, but I think the, most, the ones that stick out the most in my mind as being the most enjoyable so I remember in week two, in week one, we make Minesweeper. Week two, we make Chess, which is like a two-day project. It's like you know, 16 hours of pair programming to make a, a robust chess game with like a UI, which is super, super cool. Really awesome is that the next day, we don't do this anymore, but we used to do checkers the very next day where you try to, so you do chess like in two days with a partner. And the very next day, you try to make checkers by yourself in one day. Which is like basically trying to do it twice as fast, completely solo. Which I love that. That was that was so so great to me because it like kind of uh, you consolidate everything that you learned in those two days of like just horrible trial and error, trying to figure out like how do you best architect a chess game, right? And you finally finish it using the help of somebody else. And the next day you have to like sort of prove that you've learned it, you know. Uh, so that I, I thought I always thought that was great. When we move on into SQL and Rails where eventually we start building a lot of little Rails projects. So, you know, you make like a, um, uh, like a music categorization app. We, we end up making uh, Trello. We make uh, Asteroids when we start going into JavaScript. Um, a lot of other, like Snake, a lot of other, a lot of little games and, and other sort of like mini apps that are sort of some basic CRUD apps, some slightly more complex. Uh, eventually when you get to the end of the main part of the curriculum where we're like teaching you the languages and sort of how to use them and, and libraries and so on, uh, you get into final projects where you take two weeks to build like a really full, rich, front-end heavy app. Uh, so like, you know, a lot of people make like Airbnb clone, uh, they might make Facebook clone, uh, something like, like Pinterest. Some people make, uh, you know, 
some people make pretty original apps, which are generally very, very dense and, uh, you know, it takes a good full two weeks to put this thing together, working like eight or nine hours a day or more. So these, by the time you're done, uh, you have like a really, really awesome application that you've made from top to bottom and deployed online uh, purely from scratch, which is intensely satisfying. It's pretty amazing at the end of nine weeks to have something like that to your name. What are the problems that you, that you see people have? Or what were the problems that you had as a developer, the difficulties? The difficulties. Okay, can As you be more specific developer. in your? In sure. What, so, what so of, what? Yeah. What were the things that you struggled with? Like as you're as you're going mm. through this program, what are the things that you see people struggling with? Is it is it uh, psychological struggles or are there conceptual struggles that they have right, a right. big problem with? So it, it definitely varies. Like I wouldn't. It, it, it's clear to me after becoming an instructor that my experience was not in any way universalizable as like representing everyone's experience. For me, I would say. The biggest struggles is like would, would probably be kind of like FOMO, you know, in that it's like you get all these different projects and you cannot you cannot perfect all of them, you know. Like you get, there are twenty different things that are sort of on your GitHub now, and you've got readings to do for tomorrow. You've got homework that you've got to do over the night. You've got to get a good night's sleep somehow, and yet still like oh, like, oh I still want to refactor this thing. I want to add this feature to this app. I've got like these twenty things. Like I haven't finished the test suite for this thing. And you just kind of have to, at some point, like just reach a point of acceptance that you are not going to be able to finish everything. You know, like App Academy and any real good coding bootcamp is like, no matter how good you are, it's like drinking from a, a fire hose. You know, uh, like you're not going to be able to perfect and finish everything that you made. You're going to, have to pick and choose the things that you are going to perfect, and everything else you're just going to have to accept that it's going to be imperfect. Uh, that was really tough for me. Because in the beginning, I was just flailing, trying to get everything done, uh, which was which was just it was killing me. I was getting so little sleep, and I was just like every single weekend, I was at App Academy like twelve hours a day, trying to finish everything to my own satisfaction. And uh, you just can't do it, you know. And they tell you that they tell you you are not going to finish everything, and you have to be okay with that. But still, I was like, I, I don't know. I'm just I'm kind of a completionist, I guess. And uh, it was very hard for me to accept until like. Probably after like the first few weeks, and then I finally was like, okay, I, you know, the backlog is so big, I just kind of got to surrender at this point and be like, okay, I got to prioritize like tomorrow's readings, learning the thing that we're, you know, we're working on SQL in week three. I just got to focus on SQL and like forget all the other stuff that I want to finish, but this stuff takes priority, you know? Okay, so you made it through App Academy, uh, you did a great job, and then. Uh, you you eventually transitioned from just being a student to being an actual instructor. Yeah. How did, how did you make that transition? Uh, well, what ended up happening was uh, after the first two months of the program, uh, I was like the top student in my cohort, and the the founder of App Academy basically took me aside and he was like, "Hey, uh, we've heard really really good things about you. Uh, you know, we know that you're the top student in your cohort." Uh, we want to offer you a position here teaching. And uh, I was like, holy crap. I, the thing was, I really actually wanted to get a job as an engineer. I, teaching was totally not on my radar whatsoever. And I was also very, very confident that I could get a job as an engineer, which, you know, being that I was at the top of my class, I guess, was somewhat obvious to me. But uh, although it's not always true that the people at the top of the class have the easiest time getting jobs. It's kind of interesting, actually. Seeing Being an instructor, you kind of see the interesting dynamics that go into who gets jobs fastest. 
Um, but I was really confident that I could get a job, and so I was like, "There's no way that I should that I should teach." Like this is this is very flattering that I got this offer, but I, I don't I don't want to do this. Uh, what actually ended up swaying my mind a little bit was realizing that if I if I continued through the program, uh, I could I would end up taking you know usually there's about uh, one to three month lag time between when you finish the program and when you actually get a job, right? And so I kind of realized that there were these, you know, kind of thinking the way that a poker player does, right? I was thinking in terms of like opportunity costs. And I was like, if I, if I continue with the program and I go out and, you know, do a regular job search the way that everyone else is doing one, uh, it'll probably take me at least like two to four or five months before I actually get a job and start earning any money, right? But if I start teaching now, then that's like an extra, you know, one to four months that I'll be making money, gaining experience as a developer and like teaching code, uh, and probably the job that I'll be able to get coming out of a, uh, of a teaching gig here will be significantly better than just coming out of the boot camp. And so I was like, well, if I can get a short enough contract teaching as a teacher here, then it all comes out of wash, right? I come out, I come out even, except for the fact that like I'll be gaining experience and, and money. And so basically what I did is I negotiated like a really short contract as a, as a, uh, uh, teaching assistant and they were, they were good with it. And so I was like, Oh, perfect. This kind of solves all my problems. So I came on as a, as a, uh, as a TA. And then very soon I became a full instructor. Uh, I guess, I, I don't know how exactly it happened. It was kind of weird, but, uh, I basically was really, really good at lecturing. I think a lot of it came from the fact that I had so much experience teaching as a poker player that I think it just transitioned really, really, seamlessly into into teaching code well and and you also taught people to play poker what are the similarities between teaching people to play high stakes poker and teaching people to be a programmer yeah i I think there are a lot i think it one the one thing that i think really really helps and this is something i remember when i was a poker player like i was i was also one of the top poker instructors in the industry uh like i coached people one-on-one i also made instructional videos and i sort of taught to sort of like a, a I guess you might call it like a mass market as well. And the thing that I really understood very well and also thought about quite a lot that I, I was always appalled that other poker instructors didn't think about that much was really coming to understand the mental models that their students were using and sort of working from within those schemas that, or sort of the, the worldviews with which their students kind of viewed the landscape of poker. And the thing that I thought about all the time was like, how do I get into their mind frame and sort of show them the path from the way they see the world to the way the world really is, so to speak? And with teaching programming, that's almost like a perfect parallel, right? Is that you first have to understand the mental concepts that your students already have and use those as, to build a bridge to the, the higher or more complex concept that you want to teach them, right? Uh, and I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to explain any better than that, but that is so much, I think, the difference between a really, really good teacher and just a very mediocre teacher. It's not in how so, good of so, developers So one are. thing, one similarity I see between poker and programming is in, in poker, there's all these emotional and psychological hurdles that you have to, to deal with. So, for example, you know, if you have a day where you lose a large chunk of money, mm-hmm. um, you got to learn to deal with that. And yeah. the next day you have to wake up and not be affected by that and not be scared and to not get angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, 
that exact thing doesn't happen in in programming, but in programming, I think the biggest uh, the hurdle that I see a lot of people deal with is imposter yeah. syndrome, mm-hmm. where they will come at a problem, they'll sit down and they'll say, "Oh my god, this problem is so complicated. There's no way I can deal with it," and that that uh, fear. Right. leads like leads them to their own failure. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't know if there's a direct mapping there, but there's certainly some sort of psychological um battle that both programmers and poker players are fighting. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you're you're absolutely right. In poker it is subtly different because it it's much more the the way that you internalize your results as a poker player are really I mean they're they're so chaotic and weird and like there's so many different ways that you can internalize uh, that you suck or that you're never going to win again or that like you're just unlucky um, in, in programming because programming is like not nearly as stochastic as poker is the I, I, I yeah you're absolutely right that like one of the big things is imposter syndrome and we see it all the time in coding boot camps is that like people especially when people make it through the program and like they have all the raw coding skills but they just feel like they're I mean they're imposters right like why uh, is that well, I mean, it, it completely makes sense from the perspective of, you know, somebody just, you know, came from some liberal arts college with a, with a psychology degree. And then, you know, three months later, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to market themselves as a coder. And there's this huge internal, you know, uh, disconnect. Because, because society says, if you haven't spent four years on a degree that certifies that you studied something, you have no right to call yourself that thing. Exactly, exactly. I mean, not just from the societal perspective, but most of it is like just people, people's own self-image, right? It's like they've spent so long with this identity of I'm this, you know, liberal artsy, you know, I'm a, historic, I'm a history major, I'm a, you know, such, this, this, is what I, this is what I know really, really well. Uh, it's very, very hard to shift that sense of like expertise, uh, especially when you don't have the world reflecting that, that credential on you. You know, like the, so, the weird so thing when, about, when, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I, I think the really interesting thing about coding boot camps is that it's kind of, uh, it's, it's kind of like a credential that, you know, I, I graduated from a coding boot camp, right. That's very uncertain. You know, it's like, I don't really know if the person I'm talking to will take this seriously. Whereas if you have like a CS degree, you know that like people will just be like, oh, this person knows code. This person knows everything they need to know. Some people, if you, if they hear that you've been from a, uh, you graduate from coding boot camp, they will be like, "Oh, this person knows what they're talking about, right? They've done this for three months." Other people will be like, "Oh, that sounds kind of like Mickey Mouse. I don't know, like, <laughs> I don't know if you know anything, right?" Uh, and I think the fact that like there's this, it's not a uniform in the way that people view this this credential or this part of your life. I think makes it hard for a lot of people to be really confident about it, you know, uh, which is an interesting problem. Uh, and you can try to coach people through not feeling that way, but a lot of people, they just, they just fall prey to this thing where it's like, I don't know how people are going to perceive this. And so I, it's hard for me to get confidence in it, which I, I totally understand. But it's something that if people, you know, once people try to get jobs, it's something that you have to, you have to coach them through is yeah. being confident in that. Yeah, especially because the, the high-pressure whiteboarding situations um, will just eat alive anybody who, who really has that that imposter syndrome problem. Yeah. Um, so, but let's, let's talk about this from, from a more distant perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, is this a commentary on the inefficiency of, of university institutions? Like I, I've, I've talked to a number of people on my podcast about this and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, I spent 
four or five years getting a computer science degree. Um, and then I look at your, you know, meteoric rise through a, through a coding bootcamp. And I, I th- I'm not sure that my, uh, coding skills and my computer science knowledge is, you know, uh, like much more advanced than yours. Uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, and I'm, it makes me think like it are, is three months of highly intensive training equivalent to, uh, four and a half, five years of, uh, this academic, um, ivory tower flavor of computer science. Right. Right. Well, so before, before I attempt to answer that question, I should first add a huge caveat that I've not done any academic computer science. So I'm speaking completely with an outsider's perspective of just sort of secondhand understanding of, uh, of sort of the state of academia and uh, computer science programs in, in particular. What I would say is that, you know, there's a lot of conflation between computer science and software engineering. And there are some programs now that are like pure software engineering uh, programs. And I imagine, at least from what I've heard, those are significantly better at sort of meeting the demand out in the real world for software engineers and engineering of software as a, as an, as an, you know, as a trade, as an art. And it's very obvious, I think, to many, many people in many different industries uh, surrounding software that the traditional computer science education at the vast majority of schools utterly fails in training software engineering. Uh, And it's, you know, to some degree you could say, well, it's not supposed to, right? It's computer science, which is theoretical. Like, science is not engineering. Um, But it's it's also clear that there there is this, it's, it's um, it's something that they're willfully allowing to be conflated, you know? Uh, and I think, I think, well, I mean, what, what are the aspects of computer science that are not relevant to software engineering? So, I mean, there are, I mean, there are a lot of them. It, well, it, let me, let me again, add another okay, caveat sure. that there are a lot of subdomains where, you know, learning something like, uh, I don't know, uh, automata theory or, you know, operating systems are really, really important. Right. Like where, but they're very, very specialized fields, right? The vast majority of software engineering jobs do not require any understanding of automata theory or of operating systems, right? Like if you're writing, um, you know, if you're writing JavaScript or you're writing some front-end stuff, then you absolutely don't need to know anything about operating systems. And in fact, the vast majority of stuff you're going to learn about operating systems in university, you will forget anyway, right? Um, because you're just not going to use it for so, so long that, you know, there the interesting thing too is that you know at App Academy we actually get there. There's some percentage of people who apply to App Academy with CS degrees, and I remember actually there was a guy in my cohort who had a CS degree. Uh, there were actually more than one, um, and they were often no better off than anybody else in the course at actually learning how to code uh, and even learning like you know the we have a three week long curriculum on algorithms and data structures, and you know they had a head start because they had taken algorithms and data structures in university. But by the end of it, they were by no means the strongest at algorithms and data structures, you know, which, which to me was really, really telling because it, it kind of told me that all of this stuff is eminently learnable and there's nothing special about a university environment that makes that the, either the optimal place to learn it or uh, that gives you any particular advantage over people who've learned it through any other medium. And, uh, it's, I think it's really clear from the proliferation of these coding boot camps that the traditional model of computer science education has just been mostly a failure. You know, it, it has not lived up to 
what we expect out of most, you know, like for you know, civil engineering or mechanical engineering, they're very, very different uh, from the way that CS degrees have prepared students for the world of computer science or, or computer engineering. Um, you know, that raises an interesting question because I've heard from a lot of people who have gone through mechanical engineering or uh, chemical engineering programs, and a lot of times uh, they will say, like, yeah, I don't use anything that I learned in my degree mm-hmm. in, in my job. Sure. Um, so I don't know. It's, it kind of uh, questions the whole collegiate institution. To, to some degree. I, I, again, I, I, I would be very hesitant to speak about the entire <laughs> collegiate institution given that I've, you know, I, I graduated with a degree in English with a minor in philosophy. So I know next to nothing about, you know, chemical engineering programs. So I will, I will willfully not speak to that. Sure. Yeah. Um, how fast are coding boot camps growing? Uh, they're growing pretty fast. I mean, it's, uh, it's something that I, I, I don't know in terms of absolute numbers about the overall market. But I know App Academy is growing pretty fast, and uh, I know that uh, most of the other coding boot camps I know are expanding pretty aggressively. There's there's a lot of demand for it, but at the same time, the more and more coding boot camps that prop that uh, pop up, that also means like the bigger and bigger the influxes are of sort of junior developers who are sort of coming out of these boot camps. And of course, you know, it's just a matter of you know law of economics, right? Is that the more and more supply goes up. Uh, the the salaries that these students are going to be able to get immediately coming out of coding boot camps are going to eventually be driven down. Um, but as of right now, there's still a huge unmet demand for engineers, and so it I think it's a, it's definitely a good thing in these in these coding boot camps are responding to a real incentive uh, that you know so many. It, it's funny actually, like when I talk to employers, one of the things that they tell me is that it's so often that they get students coming out of like Berkeley or Stanford. Uh, out of their computer science programs, who just can't code for shit, like they they just can't you know they can't solve like fizzbuzz on a, on a on a whiteboarding problem, which is just insane. But you know they take a, a, any coding bootcamp student and they can solve it like that, you know, and and solve much more difficult problems as well. And uh, you're seeing this, uh, you're definitely seeing a shift in the way that employers view coding bootcamp students. Now it's not all the same. Because certainly not all coding boot camps are created equal, right? There are some coding boot camps that basically accept like ninety percent of applicants, which is kind of nuts, right? Like basically just anybody and their grandmother can come in and and uh, graduate from a coding boot camp. Um, so for for some, the signal to noise ratio is is not very good. But at the really really good coding boot camps, like App Academy, for example, we accept uh, less than ten percent of the people who apply to us, and uh, so it's like the people who come out of App Academy are very good. And if an employer sees somebody coming from App Academy, especially if they have experience interviewing App Academy students before, almost always uh, it's something that they they see as being like, okay, this person knows how to code. You know? Okay, so so you mentioned this idea that uh, the, the, the salaries for new software engineers will eventually be driven down. I, I'm kind of curious about your macroeconomic perspective that that leads you to believe that because I think what's interesting about software engineering is it's one of is this rare uh, type of type of job that doesn't really have diminishing returns. It doesn't seem to have diminishing returns to the economy. So like there, I don't see the marginal gain in the economy uh, going going down um, for for an additional software engineer. Assuming assuming the software engineers self-organize into the into the ways that uh that optimally benefits the economy in the long term i think it's actually it's actually a, a kind of an exception of a of a job type 
Uh, I would be very hesitant to say that there is any job type that is resistant to the law of supply and demand. <laughs> I would say that at the point at which you're saying that, you're probably going a bit too far in in your evangelism of uh, of any resource. So, I like, it, it, but it's just it's just patently true, right? That if you have 500 applicants to choose from for your job, right, that you can just charge less, or that you can you can you can you know, if you're if you are willing to cut costs, which every company is perfectly happy to, no company wants to pay 100k uh, to a you know a fresh grad, right? No one wants to do that. The reason why they have to do that is because if they don't, they're only going to get crappy quality. But if you have this huge huge influx of students who are all very good programmers, it just will be the case that salaries will get lower and lower just because it's like, well, we can get really really good applicants still if we pay 90k or if we pay 80k. But the, but the thing about a software engineer, you're generally hiring a software engineer, and you're saying this software engineer is going to uh, increase my company value by X, and therefore I'm going to and and I'm going to 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 give him a salary that is a fraction of X. So it always makes sense to hire additional software engineers. I mean, it like I I think it's like there's. Assuming, assume, assuming all these software engineers, or assuming uh, like a high proportion of these software engineers are good in the sense that they're actually mm. providing positive work, which is quite an assumption because a lot of software engineers are just negatively uh, uh, provide negative right, uh, right. outcomes. But assuming they all have positive benefit, I think like I don't know, like I, I just I, I, See, I, I have I'm, trouble, I have, yeah, I have yeah. trouble imagining a company that says, you know, we we really have an upper bound on the amount of software work that we need done. I, I don't have much trouble imagining that at all. I think so. Here's here's the thing, right? Like, I think two factors that I think can immediately uh, draw some light on that problem. One is that you know having a team of like five software engineers that you're like managing to try to do this, you know, try to build this product. Uh, it is probably even harder to. And there are a lot of studies that I, I think will bear this out. That if you have like fifteen software developers, you will get less done than if you just have five. Right, because there's just something about the size of a team working on a project. Like it is just not true that if you throw more software developers at a project and you just have like 50 people working on this thing, that it will get done faster or higher quality. Like it, it often won't, because you're increasing the amount of coordination problems that make it really, really hard to build something. Right? Like there is an upper bound on how fast a really good product can be built. Right, um, but if there's more sorry, software engineers, they're they're self-assembling into more teams, so you're getting more companies also. Sure, potentially, right? But let's say that, uh, you know, for example, you're building um, some app for a very specific market, and that market can only support one such app, right? Or, or one very specific niche that you're targeting. And the more software engineers you get on, either one, they're going to get in the way or they're going to create more coordination problems than they actually help with. Uh, two, it may be that they're crappy at self-organizing, right? Which is why software engineers just aren't all amazing entrepreneurs who are building all these amazing companies, right? Like, there's a difference between an entrepreneur and a software developer, which is why, like, you get entrepreneurs who found companies and then hire early software developers, right? Because yeah. if the software developer, like, you know, no software developer would be like, okay, I'll give you, you know, 3%, 5% equity in this, in this company. Uh, no one would do that if they could just be like, well, I'll just found the company with you because I'm just as entrepreneurial as you are, you know? Yeah. I think they're... There are a lot of guys who are very, very, very good at solving problems, but not good at solving business problems, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that is, that is something that I think you cannot, yeah, I would just say a lot of problems you can't solve by just throwing engineers at something. And in fact, a lot of them you make worse, you know? If that were the case, like, why wouldn't something like, uh, you know, Accenture, which has 
tons and tons and tons of uh, software engineers just be insanely higher quality and more productive than other companies? Well, because they don't, because just having a bunch of engineers doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be that much better or higher quality. Uh, it, it, a lot of it comes down to the, the way that you organize those engineers, the way that you direct them, the size of the teams they're working on, the projects that they're working on. And yeah, like you, kind of like you said, there are some engineers who just are a net zero, you know, like they just fill a spot on a team, but they don't actually create any positive momentum in any direction. And I think the, it becomes really, it's something that we can even see at like the level of App Academy where we're just training people. We can see the difference between like the kind of engineers who can like spearhead a team and create positive momentum just wherever they go. And the other, and the kinds of engineers who just sort of like are good at riding waves and can do their job. What, what are the things that lead to, to an engineer being charismatic or being able to lead a team? Um, it's not, it's not easy for us to say because, well, this is not easy for me to say uh, from the students, from our own students, because almost everybody who, who you know, graduates App Academy and goes and gets a job is starting at a, at a uh, not necessarily a junior level, but of course like, they're not leading a team. You know, they're not getting hired at App Academy and leading something. Uh, but they, they will after like a year, year and a half, something like that. I would say the biggest thing is, the biggest thing is probably confidence. Um, is confidence in their own ideas is I think the biggest thing. Because if you're confident in your ideas and you're willing to fight for them and you're willing to uh, talk about them and bring them out into the open and let them be criticized by other people, uh, one, that gives you a much better feedback cycle because if you're consistently putting forward ideas and letting them be criticized and then you know, implementing them if they're sufficiently strong, uh, you become really good at coming up with ideas realizing what works and what doesn't. Uh, and I think the people who end up becoming more passive and are not natural leaders are people who nevertheless have ideas, but they, they let their ideas be confirmed by other people before they advance them or before they implement them. You know? And to me, that's the biggest difference. And I think actually for myself, I remember when I was a poker player, I had a huge reputation for being very, very difficult to argue with. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that, like, if I have an idea, I want you to disprove it before I give it up. You know? <laughs> like, I will not just be like, okay, you know, this guy who's a really good poker player, he says it's a bad idea, therefore done. You know, I would, I would never be okay with that. I would always be like, well, prove it to me. You know, convince me. No, I'm not convinced. Like, here's a reason why your argument is insufficient to prove that this is not the best play, right? And I would just, I would just do that relentlessly. Uh, and it was really, really good for me. Because I learned so much from just being kind of like ruthlessly uh, demanding. Of people. Yeah, exactly. Being kind of obstinate. So okay, okay. That's it's interesting because I remember. I mean, I remember talking to you, and I never felt like I. I always enjoyed our conversation because I was mm-hmm. like, okay, cool. This guy has intellectual rigor, and I tried to have that intellectual rigor. But you know, sometimes I find that obstinacy uh, it can be hard to get along with other people sometimes because it's like uh i mean so just like speaking on a personal level like do you ever like have you learned that there are times where you have to sacrifice your intellectual rigor in order to uh to like uh, emotionally palliate the people around you yes yeah definitely (laughs) absolutely especially when like when you're not good right like if you are bad then 
it's probably not a great idea to be super obstinate, right? You kind of want to tone it down and sort of defer to the fact that these people know more than I do, right? And so when I say, when I, sorry, so let me, let me clarify a little bit because actually now that I hear myself saying this out loud, I think it's not, uh, I'm, I'm not conveying enough nuance in the way that I, that I explain this. What I would say is not to be obstinate in the sense that like, I know that I'm right and I think that you're wrong, right? Uh, that is not the way in which I would be obstinate. I would not be obstinately confident, you know? But what I would be is obstinate in demanding an explanation that is rigorous. That is what I think you should be obstinate in, right? So if somebody tells you, like, this is not the best way to do this, right? Or, like, you should refactor this code in this way. Or, like, you should rewrite this method to do this. Uh, what I would often do is be like, well, that doesn't make sense because X, Y, Z. And they'd be like, well, no, but blah, blah, blah. And I'd say, well, that still doesn't answer my question. Here's why it doesn't answer my question, blah, 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 right? Very, very often what students will do is they will just give up in that moment, right? They will just sort of like surrender to the person who's explaining. And I, I hate it when I see students do that, right? Like I want to see students fighting for their reasoning and fighting for the thing that they think is true and getting to the bottom of why they're wrong. You know, very often what people will do is they'll, they'll be like, okay, this person clearly knows more than I do and their method is clearly working, right? Like my method wasn't working. Now he fixed it and it's working. Uh, I will just like shut up now because I've been either embarrassed or like I just, I just should shut up because that's the way that it works, right? And that's what I hate to see. I hate to see people shutting up when the thing that they were fighting for ended up being wrong. Does that, does, that, does that kind of make a little bit more yeah. sense, what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, like fight absolutely. for the understanding, right? Like that's what I really care about is to fight for the understanding of why I'm wrong. You know, so like if I was talking to like a really, really good poker player and I was advancing the position that you should be check raising this turn, right? And the poker player is like, no, you should check call because blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, that doesn't, you know, but, but this is still a problem, right? I would believe them. Like I would not be like, well, I know that I'm right because I'm, because I'm me, right? But I would fight for that complete explanation so that I understood why, you know, yeah. because it's not enough for me to just say, okay, this guy's better than me. He's probably right. Uh, it's true that he's probably right, but that's, that doesn't help me in the future, you know, because I'm not going to see this exact problem again. I'm going to see permutations on it. I'm going to see little bits and pieces of this problem represented right. in other places. And if I don't understand how every bit and piece of this problem work, then it's not going to help me to solve the next problem that I see. You know, sometimes when I, 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 I'm totally on board with that perspective, and sometimes when I have arguments with people, uh, and not even arguments, like it's an argument from their perspective, it's a discussion from my perspective, mm -hmm. um, they look at me and they'll be like, oh, why are you playing the devil's advocate? Why are you, you know, uh, engage, why are you turning this into such a conflict? And it, it seems like there is some, there are some types of people that it's really hard to convince them, like, look... I'm trying to take a position of intellectual rigor and really have a bulletproof, uh, you know, wall-to-wall -wall understanding of this microcosm that we're discussing here. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, so so I don't know. It's it's uh you know it's it's it's, it's sometimes it's a challenge to um, to I guess convey that uh, you know that you're not just like seeking conflict. You're just you're really trying to understand something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And certainly when I was younger. Uh, I think I, d I definitely did come off as more of a dick because, you know, it, it, it does kind of come off if you're not being nuanced about it. Uh, it, it can definitely come off to be like conflict seeking or just being disagreeable or being just kind of difficult. Um, but I think, you know, hopefully if you, as you mature, 
you find ways to to disagree and sort of like you know uh, interrogate the difference between what you believe and what someone else believes uh, with some with 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 kindness you know with some degree of uh, of distance and detachment that yeah. it doesn't feel like I'm fighting you you know it feels more like I really deeply want to understand why we disagree yeah you know uh, yeah okay. Well, that seems like a good place to wrap up. Hasib Qureshi, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been fantastic talking to you as always. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. This has been a pleasure.